Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Friday Eve. We of course uh, made a little junket up to Tupelo, your hometown yesterday, and uh, hosted the show right there in the midst of stones of jewelry. And they wanted me to pass on, by the way. You know, yesterday we were talking about how folks could bring by a new unused blanket or make a monetary donation to support the sanctuary hospice in the Tupelo area. And that, of course, continues. It wasn't just for today. If you could... See fit, if you're in the area, to contribute a blanket or make a monetary donation, please do so. You're still encouraged to do that, and you can go buy Stone's Jewelry anytime, I believe, this month. That's what they're trying to do, is collect money and blankets for the sanctuary hospice there. Make that happen. That was a lot of fun, though. The... Uh, when I got about halfway up the trace en route, it did started raining on me and uh, continued on to Tupelo. And then another patch came through, but it remained a little cloudy. But the rain got out of there. But how about the train traffic? They told me 22 a day, 22 a day come by. And they seemed to wait because, it uh, obviously, as you know, it's right on an intersection there, so they're going to sound the horn to alert the traffic that a train is coming. And when it's right outside your door there, it's pretty loud, isn't it? <laughs> it kind of blows you out oh, of your yeah. seat. <laughs> oh, gosh. But I, I guess that means good news, right? Because uh, the train is traveling on the tracks there full of freight cars that I hope are full of freight. Hmm. I guess the big news is Brittany Griner. She has been released out of jail in Russia. Correct? That that hit the wire this morning. Is it just me, or does it seem like the news is making a bigger deal of that than it really is? I don't know. 
I mean, it's there's just, a joke in there about the most impressive WNBA trade ever, or something like that. But yeah, it's probably true. It uh, just seems like that all of the outlets are covering this one, and it has hit the wire this morning. It uh, crossed over, big old deal. I don't know if that really is something that big or not. It's kind of hard to tell, but nonetheless. The news thinks it is. The Dow up 196. Stocks are on the rise as the investors are scratching their heads trying to figure out about this possible economic downturn that is being predicted for next year in particular. So the CEOs of J.P. Morgan and Bank of America were interviewed a couple of days ago and had a totally different take on what we can expect next year. And J.P. Morgan is, uh, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan, is a more doomy, gloomer, a doomer, gloomer type that is offering a very dour outlook. And Brian Monahan over at Bank of America says, yeah, mild recession. So investors are trying to extrapolate from that and figure out where this market's going and uh, the economy really is going and how that will impact the market. I think we're going to see lots of negative guidance coming out of corporate America over the next couple of months as earnings are released, meaning they don't have a very positive outlook about the future, in the short term at least, for 2023. And that is going to weigh on the minds of investors, and they're going to probably sell off and pull to the sidelines waiting for better news and better times. There's still a whole bunch of cash out there on the sidelines, but it is it's hard to for the average person to process all this and figure out where it's going, no doubt about that. But that's kinda that's kinda where we are at this point. Lots of soul searching by the Republican Party after the loss of the Senate race in Georgia and honestly not faring as well as expected in the midterms, I think they're having some internal sales meetings, as you would say. Harmeet Dillon, that's her name, right, is now announced. She's a lawyer that's uh, really involved in various conservative legal causes, announced she is going to to uh, run for the GOP post the national GOP post, and we will see what's going to happen on that. So that's that's kind of interesting, Harmeet Dilla. Yep. Says she's, uh, she's in. Says we really need somebody new to step in and uh, kind of right the ship. But, you know, honestly, I think one of the issues that did plague and pull down the Republicans, she would go, of course, against, I didn't say it, Rona McDaniel, the current GOP uh, chairperson of the the Republican National Committee, the RNC, essentially responsible for getting Republicans elected in the country. So Harmeet Dillon 
her bid could mean a fairly significant change in the philosophy and the operation. But one of the things Ms. Dillon pointed out was that Republicans really didn't have a message. So while poll after poll shows folks consider inflation, for example, and economic matters their top concern, it's pretty hard to put your finger on exactly what Republicans messaged as uh, a way to address that high-priority issue. What do they stand for? What would they do from a fiscal policy perspective? Now, we talked about that on the program here, some ideas we had, but I didn't hear that coming out of the Republicans running. I think one of the things I said, Rhino, is I would uh, I'd review every executive order signed by President Biden that essentially focus more on climate change, Green New Deal objectives, and and made it extremely difficult and um, not very uh, opportunistic for oil and gas companies to increase production and explore more, build refineries, build more facilities, drill more, etc. And, of course, dealing with all the red tape to get that done is a nightmare. But I still think that when you got a government that says we're shutting you down, they're not too keen on making more investments to produce a commodity that the government says we don't want to use anymore. So Republicans really never talked about how to address that, which I think is critical to propping up the economy. Now, oil has fallen uh, price per barrel, but that's, that's not because we're producing more. It's because we're demanding less using less, and I think a great deal of the reason for that is just economic downturn and the reduction of economic activities activity on a global basis, in particular in China, where they got everybody locked up. You showed me a video yesterday, which just blew my mind, uh, Rhino, of Chinese officials all decked out in what looked like hazmat suits or something. And somebody videoed them while they're welding a door, like a metal door, right, on top of an entry into a a residence, it looked like, so that folks can't get out. I mean, we know that was happening on a widespread basis. Oh, yeah. And it's right there before your eyes in that video. I mean, there were widespread uh, reports of that, of course. But... When f- folks can't get out, guess what? They're using less fuel when they're when they're welded into their apartments and homes, and uh, so the less consumption means the price goes down. It's amazing how that works. The Democrats don't seem to buy into the idea of uh, free markets and market economics, and don't think they apply whatsoever to oil and gas, which they clearly do. So. That's just uh, why the price is down. When we come back, we've got an interview with country music star Ricky Skaggs. And I think his wife's going to join us as well. We're stepping aside in the Element Well Studios. We'll be right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Well Studios. Joining us now, country music superstar, legend, Ricky Skaggs and his wife, Sharon White. Ricky, Sharon, thanks so much for joining us on Middays. Well, thank you, Gerard. I just uh, mashed my gas all the way to the floor when I heard uh, Country Boy come off. Good Lord. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> all right. I bet you they've been more speeding tickets probably from that song than anything uh, I could think of. <laughs> that's probably true. Well, some songs, you know, while you're in a vehicle in the driver's seat, some songs just kind of inspire you to rev it up a little bit, don't they? Yeah. Really does. <laughs> well, it is an honor to have you guys on the program today. So, tell our audience what you got going on with Marty Stewart's Congress of Country Music. You're going to be performing in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, Friday night. We're really excited about it. I know Marty and Connie's going to do tomorrow night, uh, Thursday, and uh, so we're we're coming down especially early to see them and. Uh, this has been such a dream and such a project for Marty uh, for so long, and uh, we just didn't want to miss this. This yeah. is a grand opening weekend, and, and we wanted to be there to support him. We've, we've known Marty, you know, gosh, since since he was 14 we years old. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they've been just long friends. And of course, Connie Smith is like a big sister to all of us uh, here in Nashville that love her and know her. And uh, so we we just wanted to be there. So he called me uh, a couple of months ago and and uh, asked asked me and Sharon to come down and take Friday night, you know. And so Kentucky Thunder's coming down, my band, and <laughs> and uh, we're gonna we're gonna play uh, some hot bluegrass, and then we're gonna be doing some songs from mine and Sharon's uh, CD called Hearts Like Ours, and. Uh, it's going to be a great time. We're, we're, you know, we might throw a Christmas song in or two, you know, too. Sure. So uh, we're happy about that. That is awesome. And we, of course, uh, uh, Ricky Sharon in Mississippi, as you can imagine, we're awfully proud of uh, Marty Stewart and certainly supportive and, and just excited about his project here with the Congress of Country Music that he's going to locate in Philadelphia. And and we're especially proud, and and want you guys to comment on this, about Mississippi's connection and rich history in country music. Well, it has had a long history. There's so many many people from Mississippi that have migrated to Nashville and become great uh, entertainers and and recording artists, songwriters, and... uh, you know, I, I just feel like Marty's going to inject a whole lot uh, of energy into that area of Mississippi and yeah. and, uh, and just encourage artists, you know, to uh, to really come up with the, you know, kind of rediscover their sound again and not, you know, be an original and not be a copy like a lot of people come to Nashville and want you to be a copy of something else, you know, but... 
God knows where where He wants you to be raised up, you know. And, and uh, so I, I think that when we're born in Kentucky, we're going to sound like Kentucky, you know. <laughs> and if we're born in Mississippi, there's going to be a uh, an element of the South that is not in Kentucky. Yeah. So yeah. that's the way we look at it. That's a good way to put it, but all part of that same genre that is loved by millions across the planet. Uh, Sharon, you perform with your sisters, Sharon, and uh, and also with I'm sorry, with Cheryl and your father Buck um, in this group called the Whites. And I read your story about that. And it, what inspired you? It appears is just your belief in the the value and the power of family. Yeah, we grew up, uh, Cheryl and I grew up hearing Daddy and Mom sing and play. My dad was always playing music. He was always part of a band. And we just, it was the most natural thing in the world for she and I to sing, too. And he always wanted, he, he wasn't satisfied with just jam session in the living room. He <laughs> wanted to perform. He wanted to do our music you know, do his music for people to hear it. And uh, so we when we got old enough and, and, and good enough, he put us in the show, you know, and, and uh, before long we became a family band. And, and, yeah, there's just so much, as Ricky was talking about history and music and all that, so much of, of especially country music and gospel music history is all centered around family and family music and, and uh all of that is part of what the whites have been. My dad uh, was born and, and raised in Texas, and, and uh, so he's a he's a honky tonk western swing piano player and mandolin player for, at at heart. But the 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 main element of our music is the family thing, and uh, you know he loved mandolin, loved Bill Monroe. So there's so much acoustic music that's part of what we do too, and and. Uh, we moved to Nashville. Uh, I was a teenager. We moved to Nashville in 1971 with the dream of just being able to make our living as a family, you know, playing music. And and, uh, and then in 1984, we were made members of the Grand Ole Opry. We've had a lot of of uh, a lot of blessings that have come our way. And, uh, my daddy next week will be 92 years old. Wow. And uh, he still can play. Uh, he's losing his memory. He has Alzheimer's, and, and uh, so his memory is fading. But his music isn't going anywhere. He loves music, and, and uh, uh, we still play the Opry from time to time. And uh, uh, I'm just thankful and blessed that we've had so many good years as a family to be able to play. I, and I'm thankful that I can still go out and sing with Ricky. Cheryl is on the road this this whole month with her daughter and son-in-law doing Christmas a Christmas tour they were uh, her son-in-law is Andy Leftwich who played in Ricky's band uh, Kentucky Thunder for what about 15 years I think and, Nearly, yeah. and uh, so he and, and Cheryl's daughter Rachel have their own thing going now and they're doing the Christmas tour and this this month and Cheryl is getting the tour with her daughter and son-in-law so it just goes on and on and and family is is uh, a wonderful part, you know, it's just a wonderful part of all of it. I'm, yeah. I'm thankful for that. That's awesome. 
Uh, Ricky, you got a big old trophy case. I just got to brag on you a little bit. 15-time Grammy Award winner, legendary, maybe the best of all time, guitarist Chet Atkins said that you single-handedly saved country music. That is incredible. <laughs> yeah. And I, I know well, you've had a storied career, a successful career. You've, you've brought so much pleasure to so many country music fans. Uh, what do you attribute it to? What inspired you? And you're still kicking, and you're obviously still performing, and you're on top of your game. Well, I always tell people when I hear that Chet quote that uh, Chet was not taking his meds that day. <laughs> I don't know about and, that. Uh, well, he was a dear friend and uh, someone that I really looked up to a lot. But I think longevity is just the love of music that God has put in my heart since I was a little kid. I mean, I started playing when I was... My dad bought me a, a mandolin when I was five years old, and I had been singing with Mom and Dad at the house and singing at church uh, even before then, you know. And so there was, uh, there was just, this, just this love, you know, for the music that, that I've always had, and, and I've always wanted to reach deeper and, and go farther and just keep kind of pushing, you know, pushing through and... and uh, you know, one of the things that I've really discovered and I've appreciated, I, I guess I was doing Roots before I even knew about Roots, you know. And, uh, but I think once I realized that, that I carried something old and something from the mountains and something, you know, yeah. in the hills and the hollers, and that people loved that, people could identify with that because of the purity and the real... Uh, the realness of the music, I think I really started trying to um, celebrate that, not right. not look at it as, as, oh, I'm just an old stick in the mud or an old fud, you know, but uh, I think I really started trying to celebrate that and honor it and uh, and bring dignity to it because I, I think, you know, Patty Loveless, I've been, I've been, her song, you know, how 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 can I help you yeah. say goodbye? That that came on my mind this morning as soon as I woke up. That's awesome. And I just thought about how much I love her and that she feels like a sister <laughs> every time we're around each other. She you is know, great. We, we just have this Kentucky <laughs> gotcha. Kentucky love for each other and honor and respect uh, for what she carries as well. So, you know, we're proud people in the mountains and uh and I know, and I know Marty's very proud of, of his upbringing and where he we, came from. And he, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Rick. We got to go, but you guys are great. We are so grateful you joined us today. Good luck to you, and thanks for being in Mississippi to perform. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios. So, um, you know, Ryan, I'm familiar with 
Ricky Skaggs, and, and certainly familiar with him before our interview today, but I, I really hadn't dug into his bio to any degree. Man, incredible. Oh, yeah. I was I was blown away, and I, I'm looking it's at it It's amazing just looking at the, the breadth of genres and artists he's worked with in, say, just the, the latter couple decades of his career, not even including in his heyday, right. in his younger years. Right. I mean, you just look at, like, I want to say it was around 2000 or 2001 where he took the stage with Fish, the jam band, and then, like a decade later, he's he's doing stuff with the raconteurs, and then he goes out there and he does some work with Barry Gibb. Unbelievable! He's, and he works with all these different artists from all these different genres, but he still brings his sound and his style to the music. He's just an abundantly talented, gifted musical artist. Uh, there's no doubt about that. He's been inducted into the Gospel Music Association's. Gospel Music Hall of Fame, the Musicians Hall of Fame. In 2018, which was really a big year for Mr. Skaggs, he was awarded special recognition by the National Fiddler Hall of Fame, which is extremely difficult musical undertaking. Oh, yeah. Membership in the International Bluegrass Music Association, Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. And, of course, the greatest honor a country musician can be bestowed, the Country Music Hall of Fame. All that happened in 2018. In 2020, he was awarded the prestigious National Medal of Arts for his contribution to the American music industry. So he has had quite the successful career. He's been recognized. And there are a couple connections to the Magnolia State with his bride, Sharon White, and the Whites. If I'm not mistaken, it was the Whites who did uh, at least one song for the Christmas episode of In the Heat of the Night, which is set in a fictitious town in Mississippi. Yeah. And then, if you remember Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Lots of scenes from that movie shot in Mississippi. The Whites were the artists that sang the song Keep on the Sunny Side wow. for the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? soundtrack. So, you know, artists such as the Whites often are invited to participate in recording music by, uh, let's just say, maybe better-known uh, artists, but it's their work in the studio on those recordings that makes them famous, honestly. Uh, it's a combination. And so they've appeared in a whole bunch of recordings, but just to name a, a few here, Kenny Rogers. Charlie Daniels, Connie Smith, Paul Brandt. That's pretty hot cotton right there to be included in in uh, those musical works as a recording uh, recording artist and be part of those recordings. That's incredible. So we are uh, honored to have uh, Ricky and Sharon join us here on Middays and even more grateful that they're coming to help Marty Stewart out with his project, the, the Congress of Country Music. In Philadelphia. It's going to be really something. Stuart, you recall when he launched this effort, little fundraising effort, about a year or so ago, we had an event down um, downtown at the Westin that uh, was happy to attend, as did some of the other folks here at Super Talk. And he has 
assembled a collection of over 20,000 pieces. Just some of the things that he's been able to to harvest are incredible, and those will all be featured and exhibited in the uh, Congress of Country Music Museum. So it's going to be something. Looking forward to that. So uh, while we were on the on the line there with uh, Ricky and Sharon, got a notification that the Respect for Marriage Act passed the House. It had all already passed the Senate. And recall, after it passed the Senate, on a bipartisan basis, we had our friend Aaron Rice with the Mississippi Justice Institute to come on the program and break it down for us and kind of cut through some of the misunderstandings, but also expose and and provide a a nice summary of the bill and what uh, what it does, what it provides for. So it passed the House 258 to 169, 39 Republicans voted for it. On the Senate side, our senators, so I don't know how the votes were cast with respect to our delegation, hadn't looked at that yet. I do know on the Senate side, both senators uh, did not vote for it. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Senator Roger Wicker voted in opposition. Not a whole lot of explanation of their votes that I could find. There may be some other info out there I just couldn't locate. But in general, felt like that uh, it either wasn't necessary and so what this essentially does is, is codify an old Supreme Court case that ruled in favor of allowing uh, certain individuals to marry that uh, s- such as same-sex couples, interracial couples as well, I believe. And this was a, a decision that came down in Obergefell versus Hodges that took same-sex marriage out of the hands of states said it is a right guaranteed. Now, that did not include interracial marriage. I do not believe that decision, just same-sex. I think that was 2015, if I'm not mistaken, comes to mind. So essentially, I, this is almost a preemptive effort, if you will, that just as Roe got reversed... And we've heard the president say that uh, it's his top priority if they had retained control of the House, and now clearly they have control of the Senate, that a top priority for the president was to codify Roe v. Wade. And and so even though you have a Supreme Court case that that uh, with Dobbs that reversed a prior Supreme Court ruling, certainly the Congress... If and uh, with the signature of the president, could enact a law that essentially the term is codified would make the make the law of the land equate to Roe v. Wade decision, protecting, if you will, the right to an abortion. But that's not going to happen with the House going in favor of the Republicans. But. It, and so Democrats have been criticized by their own for not codifying Roe v. Wade in, in prior congressional classes when they had control, such as when Barack Obama was elected. Why didn't they do that then? They could have. But I think they would tell you, well, we never anticipated there would be 
a Supreme Court a case that made its way to the Supreme Court that would be ruled by the Supreme Court justices the way they did, which reversed this prior 1973 case. And so they just didn't invest any time in it, and it wouldn't have taken a lot. So they're somewhat negligent in that, okay, well, you left the door open and never anticipated the court would uh, would have a composition that it does where the majority of the justice saw fit to reverse that prior ruling is exactly what happened. So this is more, to me, kind of a preemptive move, protecting uh, against a possible challenge to the Obergefell case that made its way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, reverses that ruling, which allows same-sex marriage. And so what's happening here is that the Congress has acted. This will head to Joe Biden's desk. He will, of course, sign it, and it'll make it law of the land. Now, I guess it could be challenged, it all, always that opportunity exists, and if that makes its way to the Supreme Court, then they'd have to. You got so much; they may not even hear it, right? They can say, "No, we're not hearing it." Once it's codified into law, about the only way the Supreme Court's going to hear it is if they think that what they codified is unlawful, and that'd be that'd be a tall order, a tall legal, well, not unlawful, hurdle. unconstitutional, unconstitutional. Which, yeah. I'm sorry, because it is the law. The law is unconstitutional. You're right. You um, kind of conflated the terms there. But, yeah, and that's their job. They're, that's essentially what they exist for. Yes or no, that it conflicts with the Constitution. That's the purpose of the highest court in the land. Which is ultimately why Roe got struck down, because that was the court stepping out of its swim lane and yep. creating law. I think they got it right. And all they did, again, on... And, Despite what the Democrats say, which is they're banned abortion in this country, now they just send it back to the states where it belongs. So you don't like it? Move to a state that uh, supports it, that has enacted laws that do allow abortions, sometimes all the way up in some states, all the way on demand up to uh, the end of the third trimester, So, which is nuts. We're coming right back in the Element Well studios. We've got Getty Israel after the news break at the top of the hour. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. I slim too tall, could have used a few pounds. Pants points, holler now. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes. We are back in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk, Mississippi. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. I think that most people in this country are not really anticipating what I believe is going to be somewhat of an economic setback. We've already seen 
releases, uh, uh, press releases from various companies of their intent to shed jobs. Goldman Sachs this week said they're letting a bunch of people go. Goldman Sachs, that's something, I think, to take note of. Lots of the tech companies have also announced, HP recently, last week. And this is what the Fed wants. Their, their, their goal is to increase interest rates so as to suppress economic activity. That is their tool to combat inflation. If demand decreases because interest rates are higher, the idea is that companies will cut their, their costs and uh, cut the, the price, which is essentially what inflation is. It's continuous rising prices where the dollar doesn't go as far. So that is the goal of the Fed. It's crazy, but their goal is literally to see unemployment increase. They want people to lose their jobs so they don't have any money to spend. And that would prompt sellers to cut their prices. See old demand supply. Nothing more, nothing less. And the Fed's major tool, they only have two, and that's the primary one they have to to, uh, discharge their goal, which is price stability. That literally is what it says on their website. Optimum employment and price stability. So, literally, folks, if we got an unemployment report, a jobs report, that showed an increase in the unemployment rate and a decrease in the number of jobs created, as crazy as it is, the market would react positively to that. Because that translates into, okay, well, the Fed maybe will stand down on its rate hiking activity and decisions and markets like that because that's good for stocks. It means that money goes into stocks and and out of fixed income securities that are more attractive because interest rates are rising. So it's those are the crazy dynamics at work. I'm only conveying that I think the 2023 is going to be a tough year from an economic perspective. The first half, I think, the second half is going to show a rebound. Just just a just an opinion here, just a theory, but I think we're we're poised to see a number of earnings reports that will reflect negative guidance. We just don't feel good. This is what these CEOs of these big companies are going to say. We don't feel so good about our future. We see declining sales and and still wrestling, grappling with increased costs, and that's squeezing profit margins, and all that figures into the decisions made by the market. I do think, however, we will see the old Santa Claus rally between now and Christmas, and we're likely to see some green for the next couple of weeks, and and a lot of folks are thinking about selling into those rallies and cashing out and sitting on the sidelines anticipating uh, more in the way of a bear market pulling equities down, and and that gives them, with the cash they've got from selling into the rally, an opportunity to buy into that and then ride that out. So 
still pretty optimistic by this time next year where we will be, but I think we got some more uh, some more tough uh, times before we get to that point because we're trying to get this this sticky inflation. I learned this morning I was in a board meeting and uh, learned this morning uh, about a decision that we were making at the Madison County Economic Development Authority, and our civil engineer informed that the price of PVC pipe is scheduled to increase by 10% Monday. You heard anything about that? I mean, I don't go, I don't buy PVC on a regular basis, but obviously in his line of work, work they deal with that, right? So uh, he just informed us of that. So there's projects out there that involve the use of PVC pipe, as you can imagine, uh, especially in uh, civil engineering projects. And so now we're looking at the price going up. And that all that, I think, is just uh, part of the trend of rising prices and inflation. We're taking a break here on a Middays. When we come back, Getty Israel, founder and CEO of Sisters in Birth, population health expert, author, and mother, is Miss Israel. Talk about health care for women in Mississippi after the break. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, Miss Getty Israel, founder and CEO of Sisters in Birth. She's also a population health expert, author, and mother. Welcome, Miss Israel. Good to see you again. I'm glad you remembered. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> I do. Yeah. You were you were in here. Uh, it's been a few months, but you and I, I think uh, Dr. McMillan. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Was, was accompanied you, so we had a, a good discussion. Um, move up a little bit closer to the mic there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, tell us uh, what your organization does, the Sisters in Birth. Tell us about that. Well, it does two significant things: providing clinical care, namely midwifery care, to. Uh, pregnant women, particularly Medicaid pregnant women. Mm -hmm. And we also provide evidence-based community health services through our community health workers that focus on health education, um, weight management, like obesity counseling and nutritional counseling, uh, addressing a population that has a high rate of obesity that leads to maternal diseases and poor health outcomes. So we've integrated those two services under one roof where patients get the clinical care as well as the non-clinical care. But it's all about prevention, preventing diseases. Okay, so is it is it mostly focused on preventing uh, diseases postpartum? No. Okay. The, the thing about postpartum diseases, those diseases, the risk factors for those diseases usually occur before postpartum. Yep. Okay. So it's all about addressing those diseases as soon those risk factors as soon as a person comes through the door. The typical pregnant woman who comes through anyone's door in Mississippi is going to be overweight or obese. On average BMI of 30. That's obesity. And so our goal is to help that patient to achieve a healthy 
uh, evidence-based recommended weight gain. How much weight should she gain during the course of the pregnancy? Many OB providers don't engage women about their weight. They don't talk to them about nutrition. They don't encourage them to exercise, like walking 30 minutes a day. Very simple, modest steps that women need to take even before they become pregnant. If they're in the reproductive age group, they can become pregnant. Most women in Mississippi in the reproductive age group are overweight or obese. We have the highest rate of pre-pregnancy obesity and prenatal obesity. So these two risk factors lead to bad postpartum outcomes. They lead to bad birth outcomes. They lead to maternal diseases like hypertensive disorders, preeclampsia, heart disease, diabetes during the pregnancy and can kill that person during the pregnancy or afterwards. And it usually happens. There were like 51 deaths, pregnancy-related deaths, that occurred between 2013 and 2016, according to the Mississippi Department of Health. In data. Mississippi, we're talking According about. to Mississippi Department of Health data. Okay. 49% of those deaths occurred during the six-week postpartum. 14% occurred during pregnancy. The other 37% occurred after the six-week mark. So these disorders don't wait until a woman has a baby to surface. The problems are already there. The risk factors are already there. Problem is we're not addressing those risk factors. So I know there's a big argument and a big push and a controversial push to extend postpartum Medicaid. My argument is it would be pointless to extend postpartum Medicaid if we're not going to address these underlying issues the moment she comes through our doors. And doctors are not suited, they're not educated, they're not trained or skilled, neither is their staff, to do this. So what we're advocating for... To to do what exactly? To provide an intervention, a structured, face-to-face intervention that takes a woman through the steps of changing diet, changing behavior, taking responsibility for your health. A big part of health care and health outcomes is taking responsibility for your health. Over 85% of chronic disease medication is for diseases that can be prevented if we simply lose weight, if we stop smoking, if we stop drinking too much. That's public health. Public health is on the outside of health care. Doctors don't understand public health. So I'm advocating for public health. I'm saying if we're going to extend Medicaid, you should at least require and make available to this population a structured evidence-based intervention like the CDC's Diabetes Prevention Program, which is nothing but a weight loss program, which I've put in place in four different settings, in a community college for pregnant women in rural Mississippi and urban Mississippi, and I've done it for the general adult population. So if those people can change diet and exercise, do simple things like that to lose weight, you will see diabetes being prevented, You'll see it being reversed, heart disease being prevented and reversed. The problem is there are no structured programs in place in our communities, community-based programs, not led by nurses, not led by doctors, but, but led by lifestyle coaches who are trained and skilled in this area. That's what we should be doing, and we don't want to wait until the postpartum period to do it. We want to do that as soon as possible. That should be going on through primary care. Most women who become Medicaid-eligible haven't had a primary care visit in one, two, three, four years. I asked this question. So what are they doing during the interim before they become pregnant? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're eating fast food every day. They're drinking soda. They're drinking sweet tea. They're developing abdominal obesity. 
They're developing hypertension or pre-hypertensive disorders. They're becoming pre-diabetic. So what happens when they become pregnant? The problems magnify. Obesity needs to be treated as a disorder. It is the elephant in the room that neither the Republicans nor Democrats want to address. Doctors don't address it. Hospitals don't address it. No one addresses it. It's a public health issue, and it needs to be treated as one. And simply giving women more access to doctors who are going to medicate them or maybe perform some invasive therapy will not change the underlying problem. Let me ask a question. What happens after that one year is up? Let's say we extend it for one year. What happens when the one year is up? If that person hasn't changed her behavior, if she's still obese or very much overweight, she's still at risk of, of experiencing the same disorders and the same deaths. Well, yeah, so what, I, what I'm hearing uh, from your discussion there, Miss Israel, is that uh, the doctors, the providers appear to be more focused on just treating the disease with whatever is tools that are available to them uh, medically and uh, not really talking to individuals about uh, prevention through changing their lifestyle. I'm a little astonished to hear that, in all honesty, that you're saying that the, I think I heard you say that the providers, the nurses, et cetera, medical staff, professionals, don't even know how to do that. They're not trained. Doctors are, medical students are required to get, I think, only one three-credit-hour course in nutrition. Where does that training come from? If a doctor or a medical student go, doesn't go beyond and get continuing education in something like public health or nutrition or physical activity, they won't learn it in medical school. They're not required. They are trained to treat diseases with medications. Right. I've actually had doctors say this to me, and you, you won't find this as a shock, but some of our audience uh, might, where they have counseled patients to change lifestyle, just, mm-hmm. just as you were talking about, the diet, uh, smoking, lack of exercise, mm-hmm. uh, other bad uh, habits that contribute to obesity, diabetes, pre-diabetes, hypertension, etc. And when they have counseled them about changing lifestyle, the patients have actually said, yeah, yeah, Doc, but you're still going to take care of me, right? And the, and the government's mm-hmm. paying for that right. care. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm going to take care of you. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm bound to do so. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm telling you to, to improve the quality of your life. Right and uh, protect against perhaps serious disease and even premature death, you need to change your lifestyle. I mean, there's a limit to what can happen and what we can do here with medicine. So it seems like we don't really have a willing population. And then maybe this is just an anecdotal, isolated case. Mm -hmm. But what I'm sort of hearing from your discussion is that this this is happening a lot. It does happen a lot. We're the fattest state in the country. And you're right. There's not a willingness among the population, among most of it. But doctors are not, they don't have the time. They don't have the qualifications. It takes a structured program. Let me just explain what the Diabetes Prevention Program does. Sure. It's an evidence-based program. I think it was first published in 2004. That program uses not doctors, not clinicians, but individuals who are trained and certified as lifestyle coaches. That lifestyle coach will use a curriculum That curriculum addresses nutrition. It will meet once a week with a group of people who are overweight. That those people will go through a curriculum learning about nutrition, how to change behavior. They'll be coached through the process. And in addition to that, what we did was we actually exercised or led structured exercise sessions at least 30 minutes with our participants. Those participants were then required to walk 
at least 30 minutes to an hour a day. Those participants then started their own walking groups. And from that point on, it began to grow. Every week we checked their blood pressure. We checked their body measurements to see if they were losing or gaining. There were over 1,200 pounds lost among two groups right there in Natchez, Mississippi. Now, most of the people who joined did drop out because they did not want to make the changes. But here's the thing. Hold hold that thought. We'll continue the discussion on the other side of the break. Okay. Thank you. We've got Getty Israel, founder and CEO of Sisters in Birth, in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. We've got Getty Israel, founder and CEO of Sisters in Birth, also a population health expert, author, and mother as well. So the thing that always struck me, strikes me about this issue mm-hmm. is it's um, it's a it's got so many aspects to it. So many layers. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've got the financial aspect. You, you cannot ignore that. Mm-hmm. Healthcare costs money. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, honestly, when folks, d- so disease is uh, is such that um, it's it's not selective. <laughs> you know, it doesn't say, well, I'm going after this segment of the population. Some of it, it is just. It, it, inexplicable. You just contract diseases, and we're still trying to understand that. Regardless of what you do, right? And then mm-hmm. a lot of it is, well, you you led a lifestyle that that uh, contributed to it significantly, right? And promoted it significantly, and you ended up <laughs> sick essentially. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect of it is, there's a moral and an ethical piece to this. We, we're thank God in this country, despite what a lot of people say. We take care of everybody. We don't. We don't just. We don't deny. For the most part, we don't really deny care. Um, there, there are some nuances to that. But in general, uh, all you have to do is go to any hospital in your area and see what flows into the emergency room. If there is one in your area. If there is one, <laughs> right? Uh, but most of those, honestly, it's a losing proposition. Uh, from a financial perspective, but from a it's a it's a complicated moral and ethical issue. In, and I think the point I'm trying to make there, and then I'll be quiet and let you talk, mm-hmm. is that you you were discussing quite eloquently uh, mothers in particular that uh, are, are before they get pregnant they're leading poor lifestyles that causes problems while they're pregnant. Then they continue those poor lifestyles while they're pregnant. Uh, and then often don't discontinuing the don't discontinue them postpartum, and many times they're left with with permanent disease mm-hmm. as a result of that. 
But from an ethical and moral perspective, we're still going to do everything in our power as a society to take care of them. But some things we we honestly can't cure. And then on the other on the other hand, so much of that was preventable. It, mm-hmm. But it requires um, personal responsibility. That's right, and that's a, an issue that is I think front and center in our society and our country in general across a, a variety of, of areas. But they've got to be willing to adjust and be willing to adopt these uh, lifestyles. You made a point about um, their their diet. And so many folks in the rural parts of our state, they're in food deserts. They lack access to anything or anything they could afford besides the bad food, honestly, the the junk food and the fast food. It, all you got to do is go through some of the rural areas of Mississippi especially in the Delta, that's pretty much what you see Mm -hmm. from a restaurant perspective, and that's the diet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in many cases, all all those folks can afford. So your work here, you're trying to change that. You're trying to impress upon people, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, that, yeah, you really should change your lifestyle. It's in your best interest. It's in your baby's best interest pre, during, and after birth. And, and you're working and trying to educate. I get that. I read your article. It was excellent, published in the Tennessean, and you make the point that, you just as you said, you make this art, point in your article, we're the most obese state uh, in the country, and I think some of the other health measurements as well, we, we're at the top of the list of mm-hmm. hypertension and heart disease and diabetes, et cetera, and all of these long-term bad health, uh, health outcome consequences. What do you need from a public policy perspective, if anything? I think Medicaid is in a position to require some personal responsibility. Okay. I think if, look, we're covering 65% of pregnancies. I come across people. Medicaid we're talking about. Medicaid is. I come across people who have private insurance and who will drop it and apply for Medicaid. And everybody who's on Medicaid is not really eligible for Medicaid. But let's just say that, let's say most of them are. Well, if we're going to give you free insurance, we should ask for something in return so we can do what? Improve quality of life of all our citizens and reduce medical costs that taxpayers are paying for. What does that look like? Well, I shouldn't have to fight with a patient, beg a patient, plead with a patient to come to a health education class that will teach her how to eat healthy and that will engage her structurally in exercise. Yep. Right? Medicaid can say... If you want Medicaid throughout your pregnancy, you've got to go to that class. Why is that so difficult? Why can't Medicaid require Medicaid patients through health plans or traditional plans, pregnant or general population, to participate in health education programs that the health plans should be providing? The health plans are not providing structured, intensive, evidence-based interventions to address obesity. I've talked to them. What they offer is someone who may call you on the phone once a month if you're considered high risk. That doesn't get it done. What gets it done is a structured program like the diabetes prevention program that we should have in every county or every community in Mississippi. And once it's there, health plans develop it, hire lifestyle coaches to facilitate those classes once a week, include coaching and education and exercise. It's really simple. Prevention is really simple. It's always been really simple. You are required to go. 
we're taking role. You don't show up for your classes. You don't adhere to the class criteria. We drop you from Medicaid. Responsibility. Medicaid patients don't have to pay for anything. And there's a sense of entitlement among many of them. They want everything to be free. Well, if it's going to be free, we should ask for something or demand something in return. And the best thing we can demand in return is that we put these programs in place across the country, across the state, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. and require them to be engaged to go and participate. We also need to treat obesity as a disorder. It is the elephant in the room that everybody ignores, even though it is strongly associated with almost every chronic disease known to mankind. Why can't I bill for obesity? I can't bill for obesity counseling. Okay. Not through the health plans, not through Medicaid. Well, the obvious question is, Miss Israel, have you have you spoken to yes. our lawmakers? <laughs> lawmakers, Lord. Well, they're the ones that can change this, or have you spoken to the Division of Medicaid? Uh, yes. The Division of Medicaid has made it clear that they do not cover obesity counseling, directed me to talk to the health plans. Health plans do not cover obesity counseling. The health plans have some superficial approach towards patients, whether they're pregnant or not, who they consider may be at high risk. They may get a phone call uh, from a nurse. Okay, so uh, as you well know, Medicaid is a a shared cost program between the federal government and and the state. state And so, and and the federal government uh, picks up the majority. In fact, it has to pick up by law, by federal law, at least 50%. Mm -hmm. Mississippi has the highest federal match because we're the poorest state. It's Mm -hmm. It's based on per capita income. So I wonder if the reason Medicaid opposes your idea is because... I'm not saying it opposes my idea. Okay, well, they haven't adopted it yet. Maybe because we don't have the right people thinking and making policies. Hold on a second. Let me ask this question. Mm -hmm. And I haven't researched it, and I'm not sure you have, but obviously you know quite a bit about this issue of obesity. Is it because the federal government in its reimbursement in mm-hmm. for Medicaid services won't pay for obesity. I don't counseling. know. Okay. I, I don't know. Okay. I've, I've tried. I'm trying to get an audience with the chairman of Medicaid in the House to have this discussion. The I U.S. Have, House? The, the House State here. House. State House here. Okay. Yeah. And I've made several phone calls to do that. I haven't had the opportunity to meet with him yet to talk about this. Okay. Uh, but I have talked to state lawmakers since I've been in graduate school, I've been talking about prevention and the need for supporting sure. prevention. It's like I may as well be talking to that wall over there. So, again, I, I just wonder if it's not because the federal government... Nobody won't. has said that. Well, that that's... Uh, I'm going to see what I can find out. Because, okay. uh, And I, I can uh, also... I'm pretty confident that uh, many of them are listening, mm-hmm. uh, both at the state and the federal level. And we, I think we need to get to the bottom of that, because if it is a situation where the federal government will reimburse... Uh, providers such as yourself for such services in the state's part of it, which presently is 16% of costs. The federal government speaking up 84%, right, because there's a 6% addition from the COVID relief uh, bills that passed in 2020. I, I just wonder if that's the reason, if that's the holdback, but we need to dig into that. It makes a lot more sense to me to spend money on, on prevention. preventative services because that saves us money, money. down the road. That's, a lot of money. I mean, that just stands to reason pretty logical. And, and you're, honestly, Ms. Israel, your your stance and, and uh, your position that we need to introduce more personal responsibility, and if we're giving you something, we need something in return, I think most people are on board with that. I can't imagine why they're not. I think this is an issue where the reimbursement is a challenge, and we got we got to look into that. But um, I appreciate you coming on and explaining your position and, and what the root causes are here. 
uh, I think most people out there listening would say, yeah, she's right. So let's see what we can do. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Thank you for stepping Enjoyed aside. It. Coming right back. Okay. Attention, adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Standing in the rain With his head hung low Couldn't get a ticket It was a sold-out show Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Little foreigner, Lou Graham's iconic voice, bumping us into this segment here on the program. Coming up at 12.05 today, Shawaski Young, you remember him, former candidate for Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District. Get this, he's going to talk to us about 10 things that he believes the Mississippi Democratic Party needs to do to be a more viable and engaging organization. So I look forward to that discussion with Mr. Young. So that was an interesting discussion with uh, Ms. Israel, and appreciate her uh, coming on. And I always appreciate when someone who is dealing with and in really in the midst of a very thorny and controversial issue, just being honest honest from the perspective of what she believes and her convictions. And you got to respect that. You may not agree with her, but you got to respect a person that's just direct and succinct in their communication about their beliefs and their views and doesn't beat around the bush and hesitate to answer the questions. And when I point blank asked her, what do you think we need from a public policy? She answered it. You may disagree with it, and that's perfectly fine, but it's not like, well, it's, you know, sometimes, Rhino, you'll ask, and after the response has been given, you scratch your head and say, what exactly does that mean? It, that wasn't the case here, and that's the only point I'm trying to make. And so you, you, it's, it's the only way you can break through to get to some solutions to these difficult problems. Uh, and keeping just pure politics out of it, which unfortunately tends to be the typical approach. So I think we got to get her connected with people in the legislature to hear what she has to say. And, and don't dismiss what she has to say. And she, uh, folks, uh, after the interview, before she left the studio when we were off the air, she extended an invitation to me, personal invitation to go visit her clinic, see her work. And I, I think I'll take her up on that, but I, I feel like I may grab a couple of members of the legislature that are involved, in particular in Medicaid, and ask them to accompany. Let's go see it. So they can go back and report to their colleagues rather than making decisions without all this information. There's nothing better than first-hand observation, right? Yeah, because without first-hand observation, you run into the problems of the telephone game. Correct. 
Exactly right. Or even if you're aligned ideologically or politically, you're you're still going to lose something in the communication that you won't lose if you're there looking at it with your own two eyes. I think there's no doubt about that. And I, I know I've shared the story before. I, I didn't on the air today, but I, I had the opportunity to tour the uh, the neonatal intensive care unit at UMC. I know I've shared it before, but I think it bears repeating. I mean, we're talking a few miles from here, where we're sitting. And the first thing that, that I think comes over you is it's uh, when you see the nurses literally running around in that place. And it's big enough, this room, this intensive care unit, for uh, babies, human beings. And they are in these bassinets, and there are several rows of them. I think they told me they could accommodate 60 simultaneously. And the nurses are so dedicated, and they are all got smiles on their faces and just have such an upbeat, positive attitude about their work where they're trying to literally to care for these small humans to, to get them to a point of stability so they can be released and grow up to be productive adults in our society. And the commitment there and the passion, you're dealing with tough situations. And it's so it, we're blessed to have such a facility, but this is... This is something that I asked of the individual that was giving me the tour, physician, friend. And I point blank asked, how many of these babies in this intensive care unit, how many of these situations were preventable, avoidable? He said, most. And it, and I think, that lines up with what Miss Israel is saying. It's function of lifestyle of the mother before they got pregnant, while they were pregnant, and all of this contributed to a situation that necessitated intensive care of the infant postpartum. And of course, most of those babies there and their mothers are cared for or funded by Medicaid, their care. You heard Miss Israel say, and she's absolutely right, statistically 65% of the babies born in Mississippi are paid for by Medicaid. The number across the country is fairly high as well, as I recall. But when you hear avoidable, preventable, including all the resources, all the assets, all the costs associated with that, it does make you stop and think, well, just just throwing money at this problem and medical assets, we can do better than that. And that's, that's my take on what she's saying. Now, there's, I know there's a lot more complicated issues that are um, akin to this overall problem, but that's happening right down the street here every single day. At, uh, at UMC, just, just sharing that as an example. And again, my, my respect and praise for those that, that are in that business and work there, and God bless them. They're angels on earth, like so many are in that world. There's nothing easy about that. That's tough. It takes a special person. 
And um, I applaud them, J- just as the discussion we had yesterday with the end-of-life care, with the sanctuary hospice. That's, that's a special makeup to do that. Anybody that's been through that knows it. Well, the same is true. Of course, I'm, I'm not capable of treating sick people, period. I don't know how they do it. I have deep respect for doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals. I, I especially always wonder, how do you do that and then leave it at the office, so to speak? You know it's got to be difficult. And if you don't, it'll drive you so crazy, it's bad for your health. Then it impacts your health and ability to perform. But it's, it's a calling. And the same is true here. I just, I just want to point that out and... I consider myself blessed to even having the opportunity to firsthand tour that uh, that unit, that facility. Not a lot of folks have. And I, gosh, when you hear that, yeah, most of these are avoidable, preventable, such that the place would be empty. I mean, your your creative juices, your brain wheels start spinning, right? Like, gosh, what we got to figure this out, address this, and do something, and just throwing more money at it is not the way to do it. Uh, yeah, healthcare costs money. We've talked about that a lot, and a lot of times it's just just bad luck, you know? It's, there's no explanation for why some people contract certain diseases and some don't. But a lot of them, as Ms. Israel points out, a lot of what does um, consume our health care resources is preventable, a great deal of it. But unfortunately, we, we humans, we don't uh, always think about that when we're engaging in different lifestyle activities. So appreciate her coming on and being honest. Just want to, and I'll wrap it up with that. We got lots of uh, text on the ceasefire. Text line, Philip in Brookhaven says, I applaud you, ma'am. I'm glad someone is finally speaking up and telling the truth. Mike in Gulfport, she makes me want to expand Medicaid if the requirements that recipients must get uh, involved and drop Medicaid, yeah, get uh, basic uh, training and, and adhere to certain lifestyle requirements or they, they're booted off the rolls. I just don't see that happening. Agree. Paula Meridian, welcome to the Conservative Party. I'd like to see some kind of tax incentives for Dollar General and Walmart. They are every eight miles in the state of Mississippi tied tied to carrying some fresh fruit and vegetables. They already do in some areas. Yeah, and you know, the sad thing is that the food that's worse for you is the cheapest. I think that's what attracts a lot of low-income folks to consume that food, the, the very folks that need to be consuming the more healthy food. It's uh, I've seen reports from the American Heart Association. I used to be on uh, the board, the Heart Walk board here in town, and they, of course, part of that function involves being educated by the Heart Association, who does an amazing amount of research on heart disease, obviously in statistical compilations, but said that you literally could look at two adjacent zip codes and the rate of heart disease in those zip codes and and when you look at what's different about those zip codes usually tied to food available in the two zip codes and it's like gosh that seems like we ought to be able to fix that but it's an easier easier problem to talk about than it is to fix Paul Simon with Kodachrome bumping us out of middays coming right back final segment in this hour and then Shawaski Young, former candidate for Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District on the Democrat side at 12.05. Come on! Come on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, 
We are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Once again, Shawaski Young, former candidate for Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District, on the program at 12.05. That'll be coming up after the news break at the top of the hour. Going back on the ceasefire text line here, what do y'all think about the transfer portal in college sports? It's turning me off to football. Well, it's, this isn't a sports program, uh, <laughs> but we do have an excellent sports talk program with uh, Richard and Brian and Borky. I honestly have no problem with the transfer portal simply because if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If a coach can recruit you to come to that college and then before you ever play a down on the gridiron, up and leave for a better opportunity, why can't the student athlete do the same? Yeah, so it used to be because the school was uh, extending to you some remuneration, that being a scholarship, right? And so in exchange for that, you sign a letter of intent, you make a commitment to stay there, and if you want to transfer, it's pretty difficult process. But now that uh, those guidelines, those rules have been relaxed and diluted somewhat, you know, here here's my thoughts on it, and I'll get off the soapbox. I've thought for about 10 years now that we are moving towards total privatization of college athletics. I just do. And you keep seeing it occurring on, on, on kind of a gradual basis. So we've got, for example, the transfer portal. Really makes it very fluid obviously, and then the NIL, where athletes are getting paid some an exorbitant amount of money. We've got the NCAA exploring, dropping the requirement to pass standardized tests, ACT, uh, SAT, I think if you're going out of state, if you're staying in state, I believe it's just the ACT. I could be wrong about that. Somebody might want to check me. But nonetheless, standardized test requirement to uh, be certified by the clearinghouse, the NCAA clearinghouse, which makes you eligible to sign a letter of intent and uh, play college athletics. So they're going to drop that. I think what you're going to see pretty soon, and there's also a GPA requirement out of high school that has to be maintained, and you have to graduate with a certain GPA out of high school to be admitted to uh, at the D1 level, I think in the NCAA period, D2 as well, and there's D3. Uh, but you have to have a certain GPA to qualify. I think they're going to drop that. And then I think the next thing you'll see is they're going to drop the need to graduate from high school to play. And then the next thing you're going to see is they'll drop the requirement that you be a student athlete enrolled. That's just my opinion, where it's headed. And I think that athletic departments... 
may literally be dissolved on college campuses within the university system, and it'll just all go to private companies that'll run all this, and the universities will get some sort of royalty, if you will, franchise their programs. And I just now I'm not saying it's happening next year, and it's just a theory. Don't beat me up too bad on that. It's just a theory. It's an opinion. But do you not see how we're kind of gradually moving towards that? What two years ago was would get you put on probation and kicked out of the NCAA forever, now is encouraged, sanctioned, authorized, as an example. That's where we're headed. California, you know, a couple of years ago dropped the standardized test requirement to be uh, admitted into the California public school system. Harvard has dropped it. Other Ivy League schools are dropping it. That's where it used to be the most onerous requirement. They're dropping it for equity. Total different reason, but so it just seems like that's where we're headed. Oh, let's see. On the ceasefire tax line, Terry says, "What for in Bogachetta, What's the deal on the IRS investigations on transactions over six hundred dollars? I thought Biden said it would be four hundred thousand dollars. Seems we've been lied to again. Well, there's no investigations. It's a requirement that any transaction of six hundred dollars and up uh, using the various digital apps, Venmo, PayPal. What's what's some of the other ones there, Rhino? Cash app. Yeah." So they are required to report to the IRS any transactions over $600 and send you a document kind of like a 1099 where you receive miscellaneous income for some services performed, and the IRS gets reported on that. So it's not an investigation. And what's crazy about it, unlike 1099 uh, documents that are a reflection of income, the $600 is not necessarily income. It's just a report that you engaged in, that you you completed a transaction of 600 or more. And the IRS may use that in their algorithm to determine if you got a lot of those, maybe something's going on, you're not reporting income. More to say about that later on in the program, because there's some other aspects of that are, that are interesting. Super Talk News, Fox News, then Shawaski Young. Stay with us. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Well Studios. Kicking off Hour 3 of the program, we are trying to get connected up with Mr. Young. Right, Rhino? Is that we're working on? Yep, Rhino says yes. So, uh, before we get uh, to Mr. Young, Shawaski Young, who uh, you guys remember was a candidate for Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District as a Democrat, was uh, defeated by Congressman Michael Guest. But he's got some ideas on how we can improve the situation with the Mississippi Democrat Party specifically. There we go. Uh, We've got Mr. Young right there. Shawaski, how are you today, sir? He can't hear us yet. So Rhino's still working on the audio. Apologize for that. 
we'll uh, get it going as soon as we can. So back to Terry and Bogachit in his text here about the IRS situation. Yeah, this is crazy. I don't like the idea that the IRS is requiring that uh, all transactions of $600 and more on these digital apps, PayPal, Venmo, etc., those are going to be reported to the IRS, and the IRS, you know, may or may not act on that. And so the way their algorithms and systems work, if they see something that looks excessive or suspicious uh, from that information, they may, in fact, contact. Okay, we're good. We'll continue that later. Hey, Shawaski, I got you now, huh? You got me. Can you hear me very well? Yes, sir, we got you. All right, so... um, when you and I last spoke, you, you touched a little bit on uh, some of the concerns you had about the status of the Democrat Party in the state of Mississippi. And since then, you have compiled a list, I believe, of, uh, of things you would like to see the party take on and address that you think are critical just to the overall viability and future success of the party. Tell us about that. Well, look, uh, again, thank you so very much for having me back on. Uh, super talk, Mississippi. You're right. You know, we have seen some successes uh, over the past years, uh, but not at the level that we need to uh, here uh, in Mississippi. Uh, and looking at the fact that Mississippi just had the lowest voter turnout in the entire country uh, at about 32 percent, uh, that's uh, inexcusable on our half. Now, we saw Republicans actually lead three out of four congressional districts at about 70 percent of the vote. Uh, and we know that our folks are not turning out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because we're not engaging voters the way that we need to. We're not organized the way that we need to. Uh, and we have to be able to change that in the future. Uh, so in an effort to offer uh, some suggestions to uh, folks here in Mississippi, uh, we put together uh, a list of about 10 steps. Uh, now, this is not an end-all, be-all uh, type of approach. Uh, but these are immediate impact changes that I've talked to folks about uh, and have a very good uh, perspective on what we need to be doing going forward. Okay. So one of the things you indicate is um, empower, this is the top of your list, empower trust and invite minority groups to the Democrat Party table and produce voter engagement materials in their respective languages. So you're obviously incorporating uh, maybe people that are eligible to vote in our state that uh, perhaps don't speak uh, English as their first language. Is that true? Look, this is what we're seeing around the United States, and you're exactly right. Uh, Raising the Hispanic community in our particular state uh, that's growing, that's uh, contributing to our economy, uh, and want to be part of the process. Uh, And if we're going to be expecting to actually be uh, participants in the democratic process for voting for Democrats, uh, we have to meet them where they are, uh, just like other states do. Uh, and that's why I'm saying uh, we need to be able to produce photo materials in Spanish. Uh, folks that are uh, part of the uh, other communities as well uh, in our state, uh, we have to be able to uh, speak to them in the language that they're going to best understand. Gotcha. And so something else that you talk about is uh, engaging and empowering, including the LGBTQ community. What do you think about that? Well, look, you know, it's, it's not a known fact uh, or unknown fact that the Democratic Party has been standing up for uh, LGBTQIA plus rights throughout the entire United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet, you know, I think we just added one person on our, on our state executive committee this week uh, that is part of the actual community. 
Uh, so it's great that they have a seat at the table, uh, but we need to be able to reach out to folks in the entire LGBT community throughout the state of Mississippi uh, to let them know that we do represent their interests and want to hear their voices, uh, especially if we're going to be expecting their votes. Uh, that's the same thing that we're going to be doing uh, in the African-American community mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that folks understand that we care deeply about uh, the African-American community. It is the base of our party, uh, but we have to speak uh, to the needs of the African-American community, just like the LGBT community as well. Have you shared your ideas, uh, Shawaski, with the party leaders in the state? Well, look, you know, I'm in constant uh, contact with Democrats all over the particular state. Uh, one of the things that I'm seeing uh, is that that particular group uh, right now uh, has a lot of work to do. Uh, you know, my best interest is being able to act as a uh, citizen, now private citizen within the party, uh, and also offer these particular measures as something they can actually uh, take heed to. Now, I will be meeting with other party leaders throughout the state uh, in, the, in the days and weeks to come. Uh, but this, I think that we can get their attention uh, so we can change the perspective both internally and also externally in the party. Uh, sometimes people need to put uh, perspectives first. And without actually uh, having the pressure to do so, uh, they're, oftentimes they're not going to do it. Yeah, got you. Uh, something else you said was uh, amend the race gender leadership requirement, unilateral subcommittee control, and other outdated clauses within the state party constitution. What do you mean by that? Explain that. Sure. Well, our state party constitution was one of which is backdated from the 1980s. Uh, and basically, what the way that it actually is right now, uh, the person who is a chairperson of that party, uh, whether a black, white, or male or female, the vice chair and other party members must, specifically the vice chair, must be someone who is of an opposite gender and an opposite race. I think that is outdated language. I don't think that speaks to the opportunity that we have for the diversity of leadership that we have mm. in the state as a whole. And I think it limits us. And I think it also is not representative of the democratic process as a whole. We got to be able to take race out of the conversation to be able to move forward. That's interesting. So, uh, I didn't even know that existed. And when did you say that uh, that constitution, that provision was included in the party's constitution in the 80s? I think about 1980. Wow. That's interesting. So Shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's almost like affirmative action for, uh, for leadership, essentially. Look, you know, there is a long history of, of, of change in our Democratic Party as a whole within the state. I understand that. Uh, but look, it's 2022. We're moving forward. Uh, we need to be able to ensure that our rules and also uh, our constitution reflects uh, where we are today. And that's why I spoke to that particular point. And of course, you know, you know, when you have all these subcommittees that have unilateral control uh, over different segments of what the Democratic Party is actually doing, uh, it doesn't matter who that chairperson is at that particular point. Uh, if those particular people on those subcommittees aren't doing their job uh, and aren't making sure uh, that we're moving forward with policies are going to be effective. Uh, so overall, what this particular point plan does is make sure that our voices are being heard within the party, that our voices are being heard across the actual state, uh, and take some of the red tape out of how we can actually get things done. Now, look, I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of folks within the party that particularly don't like the fact that I'm speaking out about this particular issue. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay, hmm. because my perspective is if the shoe doesn't fit, don't worry. Don't, don't worry. We're not talking about you. We're talking about the folks uh, that have been in office in these particular positions on the state executive committee uh, for years and years and years, decades, uh, who have not been doing anything uh, for their specific job. There are a lot of great folks on the state executive committee, uh, some of the folks over uh, across the state. Uh, but, you know, we're not referring to those folks. We're talking about the majority of folks that sit on that committee 
that are not actually doing their job to make sure Democrats are actually getting elected and turning out the vote. And I don't think that anybody can argue uh, with the fact that we are not winning at a statewide level. Uh, we're not winning at a local level. Uh, and I think at a district level, I think that it's proven uh, that they have been ineffective and that we need to be able to have change. And there are a lot of great, great groups out there throughout Mississippi uh, that are part of the Democratic process, uh, but they give their money to the National Party or they go off in splinter groups because they don't trust uh, what's actually happening within the state party. Hmm. Now, again, those folks that are within the Mississippi Democratic Party State Executive Committee uh, that don't apply to the language that has been put forth, hey, don't be offended. The shoe doesn't fit. Don't worry. Uh, but I have received numerous uh, emails and also text messages and phone calls regarding this 10-point plan as it's been put out uh, that people agree with it. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm sure some may not, and that's okay. And he, you've heard that from national party leaders, the national party organization as well? They're aware of uh, your points here? I haven't spoken with the national party in regards to my, my position. Okay. Because one of the things I, I think you said if I'm not mistaken, is that you'd like to see alignment of the national, state, and local level. Just about 30 seconds left. What do you think about that? Is that an issue? Look, look, our party at a national level is putting out messaging that aligns with what the democratic values of our party are uh, throughout the country. What we did not see in the past 2020 election and what we haven't seen before uh, is an active effort to get out there and talk about the issues that matter to people and actually stand up for the party beliefs that we actually believe in. There's been a reluctancy. Uh, in, in that particular matter, uh, that's not how politics actually works. Uh, right. So I like to be able to see the state party move forward in an aggressive manner uh, to make sure we're pulling folks into the party where we can become competitive. Because if we don't, uh, look, you're seeing folks jump over to the Republican ticket as we speak. Yep. Uh, and that can't continue to happen if we're going to actually win. Gotcha. Shawaski, thanks for coming on and sharing your ideas there. And good luck to you, man. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. You got it. Shawaski Young, former candidate for the Mississippi 3rd Congressional District, coming right back on Midday. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. Back when they first started with the walk-up songs for a batter, everybody wanted that one when it was a popular song. That was one of them, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. We are back in the Element Well studios today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, after we're out of here today, later on in the program, or later on in the network, I should say, in a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear part one of an interview with one of the greatest drummers in music, Chad Cromwell, who's played on hundreds of songs for the likes of Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, Blake Shelton, Lady A, Vince Gill, and many more. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by visitmississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations. Of course, supertalk.fm and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So, speaking about this portal deal, college football 
portal, transfer portal. I was um, when I was at Stones yesterday, Stones Jewelry doing the show. Someone was looking at their phone and happened to announce that uh, yet another Mississippi State player had just entered the transfer portal. And it's this time of year, it's every day. The season's over, and they're looking to get on another roster. And so it's all schools. It's everywhere. It's not anything unique to Mississippi State. This just happened to be a Mississippi State fan who spoke up about it. But it's just the way it is, uh, as we pointed out earlier. Back to this $600 IRS deal. Remember, folks, what they wanted as part of the Build Back Better debacle bill. They wanted commercial banks to report all transactions exceeding $600 just in your checking account, your savings account, just your your basic uh, bank accounts, your basic bank relationships. And that, fortunately, didn't make the cut. And, uh, of course, the Build Back Better plan, it got kiboshed by Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, And so it went down in flames. But it re-emerged as the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a scaled-down version, which includes a series of moves to collect more money, taxes, shake down the American people, chief of which is hiring 87,000 IRS agents, and also a minimum corporate tax and and some some other provisions, revenue provisions to raise money. And then on the out on the outbound side, the spending sides, series of tax credits for buying um Items that would help address the so-called climate change problems, such as credits for buying solar panels and uh, retrofitting, modernizing your electrical panel and buying electric appliances and electric vehicles and all this kind of stuff. So that's the spending side. And then enhancements to the uh, subsidies provided in the uh, Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare exchanges, those were spending provisions as well. So just a series of debits and credits. Fortunately, the $600 requirement to report basic bank activity, just standard bank activity conventionally in your checking and savings account to the IRS did not make the cut. But requiring these digital systems to report $600 $600 and up transactions did, and that's where we are, unfortunately. So Terry is right in that that's not that's going to trigger potential investigation and audits by the IRS. That will go way beyond those who make $400,000. And let's be honest, even the even the Democrats know if you read anything or listen carefully to what they say, they know that most, honestly, of the tax avoidance, and in some cases, which is which is not illegal, but tax evasion is. Tax evasion is, uh, is defined differently. It means that 
you are engaged in some sort of misreporting of your uh, your income and expenses to to lessen your tax burden evasion some cases some people just don't file a tax return and all their income comes from sources where there's no withholding of taxes therefore they don't bother to file a tax return just don't pay taxes period well the democrats know as well that most of that occurs with taxpayers or potential taxpayers whose income is far less than $400,000. Honestly, the folks that on the higher end of the income scale, they're not the ones committing the fraud and engaged in tax evasion. It's way harder for them to do that, and it just doesn't happen. And most of them have professionals who prepare their taxes who would be liable as well, potentially. Now, if you don't tell them, the tax professionals, about certain transactions, particularly on the income side, and just hide that from them because there's no documents associated with them, such as 1099s and W-2s and K-1s and all the other various reports of income required by the, the, um, the payer, well, they don't know. They're, it's, that's a different story. But what's where most of this occurs is in cash transactions that aren't reported. Plenty of that going on. Yes, it is true that there's lots of transactions between parties on these digital apps that should, in fact, be subject to tax. They are, they are subject to tax, but they don't get reported because nobody's required to issue any kind of document to that respect. So the problem I have with it is is that and, and in those that are evading taxes like that, they need to pay up. I don't care what your income level is. That's not fair that people at higher income levels are are um, being honest about that and, and paying in accordance with the law, but folks at the lower levels uh, if there, it doesn't matter what your level is. That's the point. Uh, the law is the law. I may not law, like the law, but you should comply with it, no matter what your income level is. But the fact is, the Democrats know the big opportunity to create more income, to generate more income from taxes that are currently not being paid to the IRS is in the lower income ranges, because there's just lots of cash transactions and unreported income. And it's easier to accomplish that. And these digital apps are used quite a bit. If you have any of these digital apps and you see these transactions between parties that are um, uh, in your feed because they have flagged them as public or contacts, and you see all that, I see it all the time in my Venmo. And you can tell lots of those transactions – they're business transactions. They're, they're taxable transactions. Whether or not the recipient is being honest about that and reporting that, I don't know. But it is widely thought by not just the IRS and but a lot of other people that there's a lot of that income that doesn't get included in, in tax returns, and therefore that tax is being evaded. So... The problem I have, again, back to that, the IRS ain't very good at this, and they're going to end up, I'm afraid, investigating people that have not 
evaded taxes, that have not committed any tax fraud or tax evasion. You're just going to get swept up into that because the the statistical systems they use to to flag folks for investigation, audits, etc., you're just going to get kicked out on the list and you're going to get a call and you'll have to prove, no, I did everything right. It's in... And that, I think, is hassling Americans. I just wish people would obey the law and pay their... I don't like it, but it's the law. We need to work to get the law changed, not just thumb our nose at it and evade uh, paying taxes that are due. But that's the whole idea here, and we'll see where that goes. Guarantee you, you're going to hear some reports, though, Rhino, of people saying they got that call from the IRS and had to spend a whole bunch of time and, and provide all kinds of supporting information to prove they didn't do anything wrong, and the people that are actually breaking the law don't get the call. That's what's going to happen. That's the problem I have with this. But these 87,000 IRS agents, they're not going after the millionaires. We don't need 87,000 for that. That's like several hundred per. But no, that's not where the money is, is going to be found. It's going to be found at the lower levels of income where there's lots of this evasion and avoidance. Coming right back, half an hour on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, midday, Super Talk, Mississippi. So, on the ceasefire text line, this was from a little less than an hour ago. The Republican Supreme Court members lied to get on the court so they could overturn Roe. Why don't you extremist people like you me move? I didn't know we were extremists. We're extremists. Uh, the fact that they feel the need to call us extremist tells me everything I need to know about the value I should put on their opinion, <laughs> which is little to none. <laughs> oh, gosh. So you see how we, there's just this lack of, of congruence and consensus on so, so many things. And a whole heck of a lot of ignorance. Yeah, in our country. Terminal ignorance. <laughs> But if you're pro-life, you're an extremist. That's, I think that's what this is attempting to say here. Gerard, you hit the nail on the head. The patient has to be willing to put forth the effort to better themselves. That goes for many other situations in life, such as knowledge, poverty, and just life in general, of doing right by yourself, then blaming others for their problems. And you know, and that's so true, even of people that I call the the incumbency effect, that um, let's talk about those on our college campuses, which tend to be the most outspoken about this. They're, <laughs> they've got all the comforts and amenities of life one could possibly ever dream of, and their tuition's about 60 grand a year, right? But they're pointing fingers and blaming everybody else for 
what they perceive to be their plight in life. That's how crazy things are. It's incumbency. They're not worried about it, the basics of life. Weight is the biggest disease in the U.S. on the ceasefire tax line. And that, honestly, I think Miss Israel said as much. And it's clearly a, a, a problem, a pre-existing condition, if you will, that contributes to much higher risk during and after pregnancy. I just think, don't think there's any question about that. She's trying to sound the alarm about that. I applaud her. And to get folks to, to address that issue. And she's got, as she calls, evidence-based solutions to that. I think it's worth hearing what she has to say. And more importantly, doing an, a review and analysis of the results she's achieved. She's got a clinic. She's doing it. And that's why I think we're going to try to see if we can keep that conversation going at a minimum. Thank you, ma'am, on the ceasefire tax line. That was when Miss Israel was on with us. A big all-caps amen as well. Welcome to the conservative party. We may have already shared that from Paul and Meridian. I agree. Accountability. I think this is Stacy from Summit on the ceasefire tax line. Appreciate that. I'm not in Mississippi, but that lady has a head on her shoulders. But on top of that, politicians don't want to take anything away. That's basically buying votes. And I didn't say Democrats or Republicans. One is as bad as the other. Power. Joe Meridian shares, where I work requires employees as part of health insurance coverage to complete a physical with lifestyle goals or pay a surcharge added to the premium. I'm a little surprised at that, Joe, uh, the I can see how you could get a discount. I've seen that. We had that for certain lifestyle situations and and uh, complying with certain, um, I guess, guidelines there. But completing a physical? I'm not sure I've seen that. I, I would be curious as to whether or not that's even legal, honestly. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. Um, and certainly, it depends on the age. I mean, typically, you don't start getting, like, annual physicals until you're of a certain age. Unless you've got uh, some sort of family history associated with something that would make sense to do so. You know, with respect to this Griner swap, Rhino, you you know a lot more about that than I do, and you had some, some information you shared with me offline. Uh, folks are not happy that the Biden administration did this, but left Paul Whelan Former Marine or currently Marine? He's been discharged, right? A Marine vet. He was discharged after a tour of Iraq where he bounced some checks and tried to steal about $10,000. So he got a bad conduct discharge. Hmm. And he's being held in Russia on charges of espionage. Mm -hmm. So the comparison between him and Brittany Griner is a bit of an apples and oranges comparison. If you really want to get bent out of shape, over the Biden administration leaving Americans in Russia. You really need to take a look at the American teacher, Mark Fogel, who's in prison serving hard labor, just like Brittany Griner was, for essentially the same charge. He tried to enter the country of Russia with medical marijuana and was arrested, just like Brittany Griner. So I don't understand everybody getting stuck on 
Paul Whelan being left in Russia when Russia took him off the table because they're holding him in a different bucket because they have him on espionage charges. Hmm. It would make a lot more sense to get Mark Fogel, someone who's been arrested for the same thing Brittany Griner was arrested for, and get them both out. Yeah. And that's certainly not to say, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, Rhino, that there's not some degree of of, of political theater involved in the in oh, yeah. Biden's action here. I mean, there always is, right? Well, how does this affect me politically is the question that's asked every single time anything that's going to get lots of national or even global attention uh, is done, is completed. And that's, I think, exactly what we have here. But the point you make so well is that there's a little bit more to the story there when you understand the background. Because I wasn't aware of that until you shared it with me. So I appreciate that. Tim and McGee, with respect to Miss Israel and her uh, assertions about Medicaid, says, I respect that lady because of the Medicaid statement. Tom and Carthage sent a photo of uh, a young lady uh, here, an infant, says, this is my oldest grand. This little girl was born at 25 weeks and spent three months at UMC. They are such dedicated people. Appreciate you sharing that, Tom. And I agree with you. And, and so that is, that's living proof of uh, their, their awesome uh, dedication and the quality of their work. And I appreciate that. Congratulations, Tom. That's awesome. Good morning, Gerard. I think the problem with obesity started when the farmer's markets went by the wayside and we got used to getting our food on the go fast and cheap. Yes, there are still some farmer's markets left, but not enough to have sustainable. We have one here in Franklinton that's pretty good. Thanks, Sam and Mount Herman. Yeah, I I mean, certainly, Sam, it would make sense that that may be part of the issue, but I think the biggest thing is, is that traditional grocery stores just have a hard time making the economics work in some of these communities, and they've pulled out. But let's be honest, a lot of people are just for for speed and convenience. It's just much easier, cheaper to get that uh, fast food. I think we're all a little bit spoiled by that, honestly, and we could all cut down on it. But it just seems to be more prevalent in the rural areas. And uh, a lot of these folks, I don't know, maybe don't have everything they need to to consume those uh, fruits and vegetables, prepare their own meals, etc. That's probably figures into it as well. But it, I, I do think she's right that it's no secret that lifestyle, diet, and we're, we all have different DNA, family histories. It affects some of us different. It just does. I mean, there's some folks that can, can consume uh, poorly and doesn't affect them at all, doesn't seem. Then there's others that really really are diligent about trying to watch what they eat and still affects them. But in general, you got a lot better chance of staying away from uh, those kind of bad health situations, comorbidities, if you, if you do eat right. There's no doubt about that. We've learned a lot about that through the years. They should give Reggie Bush's Heisman back, says Michelle at Oxford, talking about how the paying players to pay uh, to play, pardon me, is fully legal now with the NIL program. So, let's see. Oh, this is a question. Pat Dale from the Delta about the $600 reporting requirement the uh, IRS has imposed on the digital apps. Say I do work for somebody and I'm owed $1,200 and the person paid me by Venmo. 
could I or whoever just get that person to make three payments to me for $400 a piece to not have to deal with that mess? Sure, I I guess you could. Uh, I don't. I haven't actually looked at how Venmo, for example, intends to implement this program. And you know, it could be a situation where if it's three four hundred dollar payments in a short period of time, block of time, that may trigger some sort of report. I honestly don't know. I haven't looked at that, and then, you know, I haven't seen the details of how that will be rolled out. But that's. I'm sure there'll be all kinds of schemes folks will come up with. There's no doubt about that, just like they do now to avoid reporting. So on the ceasefire text line, uh, we'll get to this when we when we come back. I'm looking for who was saying that. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, Stephen Brookhaven. We'll get to his text when we return. Final segment coming up. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. Ceasefire text line, Stephen Brookhaven says, what is the actual difference between evasion and avoidance? I, I think we addressed that, but it's it's pretty simple. Avoidance means you're just taking advantage of all the deductions and all the other provisions. You get all your gas receipts, yeah. get all your expenses yeah. and, in the shoebox. Right, and, and anything you can do to... Uh, reduce your taxable income, all of which is totally legal, right? So, I mean, I could get into all kinds of scenarios. To Palmer Home, as an example, that's a great example. Of course, the way the standard deduction is today, um, it pretty much eliminated for most taxpayers the need to itemize deductions because the itemized deductions don't add up to be more than what the government gives you. That was part of the Trump. Trump tax cuts. It's also why so many people no longer pay income taxes. Sixty uh, percent of the households in this country don't pay income taxes. Between that and the increase in the refundable portion of the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit, all part of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So that's the difference. Evasion is when um, you've, you're engaged in some sort of financial activity that is just not reported to the IRS. Let's say the uh, sale of an asset, for example, where the the proceeds and the profit on that sale is subject to tax. Or you're working and you're receiving, this is the biggest situation, you're getting paid with cash. And whoever's paying you is not sending you a 1099 as they should reporting uh, that to the IRS and to you as taxable income, and so it's just it's uh, off the table, uh, out of the scope of the radar, and therefore you don't report it on your tax return and you don't pay taxes on it. That is tax evasion. Another honestly uh, blatant form 
And I know some people like this. You just don't file a tax return, and you just play the odds that the IRS doesn't come calling, even though they've got information in their files that says you got W-2 income, you got 1099 income, you got K-1 income, and they just ain't got enough people to pursue it, and you just take that risk that you can continue to do so with, with impunity. So that's the difference. But anyhow, so uh, Steve here goes on to say taxation without representation is against the law. However, that's what the federal income tax is, an unconstitutional theft of income by the Fed. Now, I know a lot of folks feel that way, and that's a, a deep discussion for a whole other day. But fact is, it is the law. Whether or not it's unconstitutional would uh, require an opinion issued by the Supreme Court, and maybe they've done it before, Rhino, I don't know. So I asked the question of Steve, have you considered filing a lawsuit since you believe it's unconstitutional? He says many have. I'm not familiar with them. You may be right. I'm just not. But we're all basically being shaken down by a bigger gang called the IRS. In all honesty, they have entirely too much power over the people's income. Well, we've certainly discussed the, the extension of power and honestly, the abuse of power across the agency spectrum. Most recently, the the landmark case that involved uh, West Virginia suing the EPA because the EPA was uh, acting in an unauthorized fashion, according to the Supreme Court. They 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 took the liberty of kind of expanding what what law called for uh, various uh, various law pertaining to environmental protection or what that agency should be doing in that regard and they they kind of went over and above and extended and exceeded outside of those boundaries and the and the the Supreme Court said no that's not what the law says here you're acting in an unconstitutional fashion in that respect and uh, that so that was a landmark case if that's the same case with the IRS here uh, look I'd I loathe the IRS. I've um, I've had uh, one issue with them before. I think I may have shared that with they, where they said it they had money that I'd sent in, but no tax return to accompany that, and shut down my investment accounts as a result. Not because I hadn't paid. I paid. They just didn't have any tax returns. Well, that's on them. I had proof that I sent them. They just couldn't find them. This is back before you had e-file. So, and there's other, there's gazillions of, of examples, right, where they have, they do have a tendency to bully a little bit, and they go chasing uh, rabbits, no doubt about it. That's a, that's a problem. But it, the tax law is the tax law, and in my opinion, folks ought to comply with the tax law. Avoiding taxes, minimizing taxes, have at it. I'm in there with them. I don't want to pay any more than I lawfully, legally owe, and uh, I hope other folks do the same. That's where we are. We'll talk about that maybe some more later on. Appreciate the, the conversation there, Steve. Had some other texts we couldn't get to today. Apologize for that. But we are out of time here today in the Element Well Studios. But we're going to be right back in here tomorrow at 10 o'clock on middays. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.